Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come before you this morning to hear your word preached and proclaimed, Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us and close our ears to any error that I may speak. And Lord, as we close out our series on 1 John, it's been a, a great series. And Lord, I pray that you would that you would just help us, and I hope <clears throat> have helped us to gain a deeper appreciation for this book, for this epistle. And Father, I pray that you would help us to, to meditate on it deeper, to think on it more thoroughly. But Lord, as we come to this most interesting of questions, the unforgivable sin, what is it? Lord, so many of us have wrestled with it. So many of us will run into people who have wrestled with it. People who think that they are unforgivable. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn about this sin, to learn what it is to engage in this sin, and to help us to be able to minister to people who think that God cannot forgive them. How do we reach out to these folks? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So many of you may know that I am a... A diehard Redskins fan, a Washington football team. Um, that's what they're called now. Uh, if you are a Redskins fan, you are bitter at the Washington football team legacy. Uh, we don't have a real name right now. <clears throat> but I grew up that, uh, with that uh, football moniker. We, we um, in Washington, we are rabid fans. We are fanatical about that team. If you're a New York Yankees fan, you might understand that. A Boston Red Sox fan, you might understand that. A Green Bay Packers fan. Uh, There's other football uh, fan groups that are equally fanatical about it. If you're in college football land, you may not understand that pro football fans are fanatical about that. And it's an ancient kind of, it's an old line of football, right? Uh, That started, it's one of the oldest football teams. It's a proud line. They've got all kinds of championships and Super Bowls and all kinds of allure around that football team. And so that's what I grew up with, lots of Super Bowls, championships, and it was an exciting time to be a Redskins fan until around 1998 when this gentleman named Dan Snyder bought our team and proceeded to run it into the ground. And it has been a miserable couple of years. See, when I was growing up in that team, you had, uh, you had families pass down season tickets to their kids, and it went generation to generation. In fact, there was a 20-year waiting list for tickets to get to Redskins games. That's how um, popular they were in that area. Now, that area has only grown since then. It's the sixth largest television market in the country, which I tell you only to make you under, or to help you understand how bad it's gotten under the new owner. And the new owner... We have run the team down to 50% filling, or the stadium has been 50% attendance right right now because he's grounded into the ground. And the stadium has had seats, thousands of seats removed every few years. And still we are at 50% attendance. Now he's done that in a couple of ways. One, he's put a really bad team on every year, which I have to watch season in and season out, misery constantly, And yet at some point in every season, I will scream, we're going to the Super Bowl because that's just the way we are. It's like Vanderbilt fans screaming, we're going to be national champions. It's just the way of the Redskins fan. But the other way he's done it is this. 
he runs a very corrupt organization. So a few years back, he had, well, the management had player or uh, management had personnel take pictures of his cheerleaders getting undressed behind the scenes, and he sent those pictures out to various, or they sent pictures out to various staff members. Now, they denied that this took place. They denied that they had any knowledge. The, the GM, Bruce Allen, denied that he had any knowledge of this taking place. And he said that lower-level management had some knowledge of that, and they fired anybody who knew about that. But the NFL, in their wisdom, did nothing about it because this wasn't that serious a crime to the NFL. Bruce Allen, though, said, we took care of it in-house. Now, after that, something happened. Forty women filed a lawsuit claiming that they had been sexually harassed for twenty or over a 20-year period, that they had been systematically sexually harassed, and that expanded out into a suit where over 100 women had experienced this kind of harassment, and that expanded out into many men saying that they had also been bullied on the job. This lawsuit expanded, and this investigation expanded, and the NFL, at the end of the time, in their wisdom, presented a report to Roger Goodell, the head of the NFL, and nothing was done about that either. Well, there was something done, a $10 million fine, which sounds exorbitant until you realize in in a billion-dollar franchise term, that's just a small salary thing for it. There was nothing was done. It wasn't very important. Why do I mention all that? Well, this week, something happened out of the Redskins scandal. John Gruden, coach of the Los Angeles Raiders, got fired over the Redskins scandal. How did that happen, you might ask? Well, he was an ESPN reporter and, or ESPN commentator. And he was friends with GM of the Redskins, Bruce Allen, many years ago. And because of all the emails they got in this investigation, those emails were somehow exposed. And in those emails, John Gruden was exposed making racist comments about the NFLPA director, who's African-American. But that wasn't enough to get him fired. Nobody really cared about that because that was not the unforgivable sin. No, nor was the unforgivable sin the fact that he, uh, Bruce Allen, had been sending him naked pictures of the cheerleaders, which he said he had no part in. Bruce Allen is a liar. Maybe my owner is a liar as well. We're not sure, but he certainly was a liar. That also wasn't enough to get him fired. No. On Monday, several other things came out which in our society were cons are considered the unforgivable sins. One, Bruce Al or sorry, one, John Gruden said naughty things about the commissioner of the NFL. All right? And when he did those naughty words, one of those naughty words was a slur against the LGBTQ3A, A3, whatever the new term is, group. And another thing he said was something about female referees. Those were the things that he said, and those were the things that in our society were unforgivable. Now, 
it isn't unforgivable for everybody, right? These sins are entirely forgivable in our society if you are from the right class, regardless of your color or background. If you're from an extremely affluent class in our culture, or if you're from an elite, secular, progressive class, you can be as ist, whatever the ist is, racist or whatever other thing, or ick, phobic, criminal, or hypocritical as you wish, and your sins will be forgivable. But if you aren't, there's a whole list of sins that are unforgivable, and for them you must be destroyed. And so Gruden will be sacrificed for these sins. He's lost his job. He'll be now made anathema to our culture. And no matter what he does, he won't be accepted back in. Now, I can't speak to his heart or to his repentance. I only mention all of that to contrast the world's view to our Scripture passage this morning. In the world's view right now, there are unforgivable sins because of what you do and your position or status in society. But in Scripture, there seems to be one unforgivable sin. And it has nothing to do with your status in society. But it does seem to be a thing that you can do. Or is there just one unforgivable sin? Because John mentions something that kind of makes us question that. And we're going to look at that this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray to that. So the sin that leads to death here is a bit controversial, like in our society, right? We have controversial sins that lead to death in our society. But in Scripture, there is at least one unforgivable sin. And most of us know that unforgivable sin if you read Scripture for any length of time. Matthew 12, 31 to 32, here it is. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, let me qualify blasphemy here, because we're all kind of, we're all kind of Protestants at some level or another, right? Even if we came from a Roman Catholic background or Eastern Orthodox, we're in America, and so we kind of have this kind of Protestant understanding of blasphemy. And so here's what our Protestant understanding of blasphemy is. When I was in college and I was coming down the hallway, I was, I was home from college, and it was late at night. You, you all know this. You got to go to the bathroom late at night, right? And, you, and the hallway's down there. And you, the bathroom's way down there, and you got to go down the hallway. But you don't want to turn on the lights because you don't want to really wake yourself up because if you do that, then you're up, right? You're just going to be up for a long period of time. So you walk down, and I'm just stumbling down the hall or the bathroom, and you do this. You kick the door frame. You ever done that? You kick the door frame. I caught it on my little toe, broke my little toe, by the way. And you do what? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you, G. No, I didn't do that. I said a string of not good words. They were not good words. And a lot of them were GDs right? 
They were, they were slanderous words. They were blasphemous words spewed from my mouth. Now, we think of that as blasphemy. Now, Mike is a Baptist. He is horrified. That is blasphemy to him. He cannot imagine anything worse than that except for... Oh, that was bad. <laughs> that is bad. And dancing. Dancing. Dancing and, and dancing and drinking and, and, and saying that word of the verse. But that's really not what blasphemy is. Now, don't get me wrong. That is blasphemous, and that is a bad thing. But that's really not what blasphemy is. I mean, it, it is, but it's not really what the worst of blasphemy is. What, why do I say that? Well, if, if you're saying that that's the worst of what blasphemy is, and then I will challenge you, you haven't read Scripture. If you look in the Old Testament, you will see what blasphemy is. Why? Well, in the Old Testament, in the, in the prophets, people were actually going to the temple of the Lord, and they were taking their children, right, before God, and they were burning them in the fire, sacrificing them to the Lord. That's blasphemous in the extreme, right? They were desecrating the Lord by sleeping with temple prostitutes, in his name. In Samuel, if you were in my Samuel Bible study, the high priests of the Lord were going when people were offering to the Lord and they were stealing from their sacrifices right in front of them. And they were doing some other wicked things as well. That's the height of blasphemous. We have this like little league version. Not that you should be saying those things, don't get me wrong. But so often in Protestantism, we're worried about dancing and little silly things. <clears throat> now that's something that we need to understand. When we're talking about forgiveness of sins and forgiveness of all these things, we need to understand that as Christians, we need to not take this nonsensical, silly, trite understanding of sin out into the world when we're ministering to our friends and family and neighbors. Because when they're coming to us and asking to the Lord forgive our sins, and we start talking about silly stuff, like I heard a guy get up and give a testimony about how the Lord forgave me because I drank a beer. That's not really helpful to the person who was an alcoholic or to the person who beat his wife because of alcohol. There's other things that are out there that are far darker, and we don't need to be giving silly trite. I was dancing, and the Lord forgave me. No. You need to be really dealing in the raw because that's where Jesus was. Right? Jesus was with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinner. What, the prostitutes? They weren't living a nice life, folks. He's ministering and he's reaching among them. And so when he says here that the blasphemies are going to be forgiven, oh, he really means something, right? He really means something. That all the blasphemies will be forgiven. What he means is these deep, dark things will even be forgiven. Deep, dark things. How many of you have done deep, dark things? Raise your hands. Liars, everyone who held their hands down. Forgive it, forgive it. No, excuse me. We've all done deep, dark things. 
We've all done things. If I was going to put them on the screen right here, how many of you have things that you don't want posted on that screen right there? Right? We've all got it. And some of us have some really dark crud that's happened to us or that we've done. But the Lord will forgive that. That's why it's so surprising when Jesus says there's one thing that will not be forgiven, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what is it? Well, most of the people who are talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of stuff that's just really silly about it. But there are three things from the context of this passage that we can conclude. It could be one of three things. One, it's that when Jesus in the flesh was in Israel and he was working a miracle right there, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, all these people saw it. They saw Jesus. They knew that he was the Son of God. They saw him working a miracle in the power of the Holy Spirit. And despite all of that stuff, they still said he was working as Satan. And that was Satan doing that stuff. And they were doing that because they wanted, as Jesus says in the, the parable of the wicked tenants, which is the thing that gets him killed at the end, the, the raising of Lazarus and the parable of the wicked tenants, that, why? They wanted to take over Israel. They wanted God out of the way so that they could be God. That's one. And he says, you will not be forgiven of this. And we see that all the way in Acts, where they're finally condemned after, at, the, at the stoning of Stephen. The second is, and it could be this, that when you see or anyone sees the Holy Spirit working and you say that is Satan working, that also could be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Some people argue it's that. And the third thing is that when the Holy Spirit's been working on you to come to Jesus Christ and you reject him, that that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, Which of those three you pick is up to you. You can wrestle through that. There's all kinds of people arguing over that, okay? I personally go with the first one. I think the first one is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I think that from the context of the text of Scripture, that's the best option. But other people will argue that the second one is a really good option. The third one I don't think is the best option because you're going to end up there anyway, right? Like, if you don't receive Jesus, you are going to end up in hell anyway, right? And I, Oh, did I say hell? That's an uncomfortable word, Pastor. That is really mean that you said hell. But I, just, I need to qualify that I said hell. Um, well, I, it's not from me that I get hell. I just need you to, to understand that. Jesus himself is the one who teaches about hell more than anyone else in Scripture. So when I say hell, I just want you to understand where I got that from. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in where? Okay, so I, it's Jesus. Blame him. He says it. He teaches about that. But I don't think that the third really makes sense in this context. But the Apostle John, in our letter, points out something interesting. He says that the danger of the sin, he points out to the danger of a sin that leads to death. He's warning his readers about the danger of this sin. So here's something interesting. He cannot be pointing out blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, at least as I've described it when Jesus was on earth. Why? Why can't that be what he's pointing out? 
Why can't that be the sin that leads to death in John's epistle? Anybody? Put on your thinking caps. When's John writing this letter? Sixty years later? Fifty years later? When was Jesus alive? On earth. Fifty or sixty years earlier. So that sin couldn't be committed. That's not the sin he's warning him about. Right? That's not a sin that could possibly be created. That, that's not a sin. Jesus is not on earth. So he's not warning them about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Unless, possibly, it's the second one. Unless somehow they could see somebody doing something in the works of the Holy Spirit and committing that particular sin. So it's possible if that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. However, what if they're in it? We read here, 1 John 5, 17 to 19. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we know that the world lies in the evil one, and that we know that if you and I are in God, and we are of God, that we will not keep sinning. And what he means by that is we will not keep living in sin. We will not keep actively sinning. We're all going to sin. But if you and I are of God, we will not keep actively living in sin. If you have somebody who is actively living in sin, they're actively pursuing that sin, then they're not of God, right? That's why we say <clears throat> you can struggle with particular sins, but you can't keep living that sinful lifestyle. So can you be a Christian and be an alcoholic? Well, you can be a Christian who struggles with alcohol, but you can't be a Christian who's devoted to that lifestyle. You've got to serve one or the other right? You can be a Christian who struggles with anger, but you can't be devoted to your anger. You got to give it up. You got to struggle with it. Like, so we all have these addictive lifestyles. So in our current society, we want to be addicted to the certain sexual lifestyles, right? Of all flavors. There's pick one, right? Or we want to be materialism or whatever. We want to be addicted to these lifestyles, and we want to say, I want to live this lifestyle and be a Christian. No, you're a Christian, right? You got to give that up. We're not, we're not slaves to our passions, right? So we don't actively sin, and that's what he's saying here. <clears throat> so what sin would lead believers to death, though? Because he says, look, we can struggle with sin because there are certain sins that do not lead to death, but there are other sins that do lead to death. So what is the sin that does lead to death? Is it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, not if it is what Jesus says and what is the most logical to the, in the context of the Gospels. So what sin could this be? Well, let's turn to Hebrews 6, 4-8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. 
But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So the sin that leads to death here in Hebrews that's mentioned is what? It's called apostasy. What is apostasy? Well, apostasy is repentance. In its true form, it's repentance, right? But not holy repentance, wicked repentance. See, holy repentance is when I repent from my sin and I turn to the Lord, right? Wicked repentance is when I repent from goodness and I turn to wicked, right? So, when I repent from evil and I turn to the Lord, I'm good repenting. Apostasy is when I repent from the Lord and I turn to evil. And that's what apostasy is. I was of God and now I am not of God. That's what he's saying. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Now the question is, how does this happen? Well, it's easy enough if you're Arminian, that's one particular viewer, Wesleyan, and you say that you can lose your salvation. Different groups say you can lose your salvation. So you became a Christian, and then you reject Christ, right? At some point you received Jesus, and then you said, I don't like Jesus anymore. I reject him. A lot of ways you can do that. If you're from the Reformed camp, the Augustinian camp, um, or, or whichever camp, however we're going to get there, Cramner or others, and you believe in predestination, then how do you get there? Well, you, you would say this, you were raised in the church, you were raised among believers, you have tasted and you have seen and you have taken in all of this. You've experienced the things of God and you reject it. You turn away and you reject it. Or you have some measure of the Holy Spirit, you have some measure of Jesus within you, but you're not of the elect. And you grow, you're like the vine, or you're like the seed who grows, and the thorns and the cares of the world choke it out, <clears throat> and you reject. There's different ways that Reformed people argue this. That's for another time, though. Somehow, you accepted, and then you rejected. So, how does this work out? guy I was listening to was a pastor. Had been a pastor in a large congregation, I think it was, or a medium congregation. Had been a pastor for quite a while. He decides that God isn't real, and he leaves the Lord. It's been actually a popular trend, by the way. You can see all kinds of magazines like this. When you leave the Lord as a pastor, you have to do this. You shave your head, you get a coffee cup, or you do something like this, and you have to take these really dramatic poses in the country overlooking a lake and whatever, and then they post all these freedom poems and all that stuff about how you're free, and then you write these essays in the Atlantic or whatever other journal, and that's like a really big thing right now, right? You kind of do that, but you kind of got to have a certain untucked shirt and untucked look and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but this guy kind of cuts the edge, and he becomes one of the major uh, pornography producers of movies in California. And why does he do it? I interview him. So he produces wickedness, wickedness on a massive scale. Why does he do this? We talk to him. He says this. He just realizes that there is no God. And if there is no God, he says, then there is no good and evil. And if there is no good and evil, it's all made up. I can do whatever I want to. Human beings make up good and evil, right? 
There is no absolute truth. He figures it out, just like this philosopher Nietzsche did. If there is no standard for good and evil, then I can do whatever I want to do, so I might as well do whatever makes me rich and whatever makes me happy. That's why this current morality play that we're seeing out there in our society is so ridiculous with kind of this secular progressive world that we're in, where people keep on telling us what is right and wrong in progressive world, right? It keeps on changing. Like, if you want to know what is right and wrong today, just write down what is right and wrong today and compare it to six months ago and six months before that and six months before that. And if you think you're right today, just write down what you think you are today and compare it to six months from now and six months from now and six months from now, and you'll find out that what you believe today is very wicked two years from now. Why? Because there's nothing for them to anchor it on. It's all created in their brains, right? It's just some group of professors or some group of politicians somewhere making it all up as they go along. It's a morality play. It's ridiculous. And that's what this gentleman figured it out. Apart from God, there is no standard of right and wrong. And so this guy rejects the Lord, as many other pastors have been doing. So the author of Hebrews, Jesus, and John are all speaking of the person who they think who, who thinks they know better. They've tasted and they've seen the Lord, and for one reason or another, they repudiate Him. And the folks mentioned in Hebrews 1 and John, and um, whatever reason, have tasted. They've seen the goodness of God. They reject. And those are the ones who commit unpardonable sins that lead to deaths. And all of this, and this is what they have in common, right? Whether they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit or whether they've rejected and repudiated the Lord, their sin becomes unpardonable. Why? The author of Hebrews says this, once you've tasted, once you've rejected, once you've repudiated at that level, at that deep level, there is no returning to the Lord because Christ cannot be re-crucified. But really and truly, a person who does that at that level does not want to come back and will not want to come back. Really what John is telling you is at that point, Stop praying and stop worrying about that person. They are lost to us. There is a sin that does not lead to death. Other believers will struggle with sin. Other people out there will struggle with sin. Keep praying for them. That is agape. Keep working with them. There will come a time where some people will simply repudiate and will leave and will reject like the Sanhedrin did, like the Pharisees did. They will, they will just leave it. They don't want anything to do with it. They are the seed of the serpent. Stop chasing after them. Worry about your brothers and sisters who are indeed struggling and fighting the good fight. Worry about those who have not yet come to Christ and go preach the gospel. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Go preach to them. The time for prayer is before they choose, he says. And then he ends the epistle this way. 1 John 5, 20-21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. We're running over time, but I wanted to end this so we can end our series. So that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So John concludes with this summary. 
This is what it means to be a Christian, he said. This is why I've given you this letter. This is what it means to be a believer. I've taught you everything about what it means to believe in Jesus, what it means to have unconditional love, and what it means to follow me. Right? Live with one another. Love one another. Serve one another. And in these times of COVID where we've learned to hold up and be independent and to stop living in community, 1 John teaches us to break out of that shell and begin to live once again in community because that's where the true love of Christ is found. And not only live in community, but take that community into the world because that's what will draw the world to us. That's what the reminder is. And then at the very end of that, he says, now that you know what the authentic love of Jesus is, this is now what the non-authentic love of Jesus is. Don't worship idols. Don't chase after those who have rejected the community. Don't waste your time. Instead, be about the important things of Jesus. Now get out there and do it. And that's what this epistle was fundamentally about. I hope you've enjoyed your time in this epistle. I hope you've come to appreciate it as much as I have. At first, when you look at the Catholic epistles, they don't seem to be that important, right? You seem to think Romans and Hebrews and Galatians are more important. But as you grow in age and wisdom, I think you look at 1 John and you realize the power of an epistle like this. You look at James and you realize the power of that epistle. I hope over time, and when in our time here, you've come to appreciate it at a much deeper level. Amen? Amen.